0: Welcome to the Science and Beers podcast with me, Michael McGee. Talking science and drinking beers with researchers down at the pub. So join us with a brew and let's cheers to science. This week we're going on a journey to the Arctic and the Antarctic with Dr. Carl Attard. We're going to hear what it's like to visit the North Pole or scuba dive in leopard seal hunting grounds. Karl is a good friend of mine. He works as an assistant professor at the Department of Biology at the University of Southern Denmark in the Sea Group. He's also recently joined the Danish Institute for Advanced Study as a fellow and you'll know that I'm doing the third season of this podcast in collaboration with the Institute. In our second beer, we're going to get a little bit more in depth into Carl's research and particularly his interest in coastal ecosystems and how to protect them. We had a couple of questions on social media from our followers and one of them led us into a conversation about the recent Netflix documentary, Seaspiracy. Please help me spread the word about this podcast. You can do that by recommending it to a friend, leaving us a review on whatever app you're using to listen to the podcast or giving it a share. Also consider subscribing to the podcast on your favourite podcast app or else on our website. Uh, that way, you'll be able to receive the occasional blog post, some news updates, and know whenever you're whenever the latest episode is out. I'm your host, Michael McGee. Our guest is Dr. Carl Hidhard. Cheers. So, Carl, of course, sea salt. Thanks for Good joining choice. me in person here. We have mm-hmm. a very <laughs> themed crisp here, sea salt. <laughs> Let me pour you some here. Marine biologist that you are,
1: I'm gonna check the salinity. Let's
0: check the salinity. <laughs> mm, mm,
1: mm. Oh, that's pretty salty. That's pretty salty. That's like Mediterranean salty.
0: Oh, because <laughs>
1: you're from the Mediterranean, aren't you? Mm. I'm Originally from uh, from the Maltese Islands. The from Maltese
0: Malta. Islands. Yeah. It's a beautiful, beautiful place. Hmm. I I th- ha- have a beer to accompany the. Sea salt flavored crisps, and your profession professional marine biologist. <laughs> I have here from the Holy Fridge Bar a beer called Smirk of the Dolphin, and Smirk, Smirk of the Dolphin, and <laughs> they do have I, a smirk. Don't I they? had I had to get this beer because you have a picture of the head of a beautiful, beautiful dolphin there.
1: Yeah, and is that in a dolphin area?
0: I I don't know. I think it's dolphin friendly <laughs> <beer, laughs> friendly at beer. least that <laughs> So and it's from the Foam Brewers and it's called the High Breaks and it's 8.4%. So it's a good start. Wow! Cheers. Thank you, Michael. Oh, cheers! Smirk of the Dolphin. That's that's pretty good, eh? That's good. I like it. And of course, you're you're naturally into dolphins. Every marine biologist. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that's Studies the fir- that's dolphin. the first thing people. <laughs> People say, like, I, I studied marine biology, but the, oh, marine biology, oh, like dolphins and whales. Well, there's a lot more to it than that. There is, and
1: and yes, a lot of it is is it can be even more interesting. In my yeah. <laughs> and we're we're going to in go.
0: We're going to get on to talk about that a bit later on, and your specific interest. But before that, I want to talk about talk about uh, travel because I know that your work has brought you to many interesting places. Whenever we first met, it was about. 2012, I just moved to yep. Denmark to start my masters in marine science, and at that time you were a couple of years into your study already. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think whenever I arrived in Denmark, you were already in Greenland.
1: Yeah, yeah. Was so it? I was living in Greenland for for eighteen, or well, close to eighteen months, a year and a half, uh, as part of my as part of my PhD.
0: I think we we met whenever I was asking you some advice because I then went on to go to Greenland and live there for half a year during my my master's thesis and just loved the the country just fell in love with it it's, it's i've never been anywhere like that it's just absolutely
1: beautiful me too yeah i was really impressed and i guess one day you'll have to tell your guests about <laughs> uh, your listeners about your experiences in greenland
0: the first thing i remember is is the, <laughs> the taste of the air i never yeah. i never smelled anything like it you know it was it was so crisp and pure it also meant that if, if you smelt some kind of impurity, like you were going in for a beer on a Friday night, you could smell the smokers <laughs> a long way before they they actually came to you. Yeah, but um, oh, there's
1: a lot of fresh air over there. Yeah, what well, what were you doing?
0: So it, was, it was
1: part of my it was part of my um, PhD. I at the time we had just established a new um, f- a facility at at SDU. using a particular method um, that lets us sort of study ecosystems in in new ways. And um, in particular, looking at um, aquatic processes, so processes going on in the fjords around Greenland and trying to figure out, you know, things like uh, photosynthesis rates throughout the year. Naturally, the, the seasonality in Greenland is really extreme, right? You get, and in the Arctic in general, um, you get sort of these extreme high light periods in spring and summer. And then in winter, it's just, well, it's just dark for, for a period of the year. It, it's dark around the clock or else it's bright around the clock. Exactly. So it goes through these two extremes. And, and I think one of, one of the interesting questions we wanted to address with that research is, is how do these, the plant communities living in shallow waters around Greenland respond to these conditions?
0: Do they respond like we do? <laughs> Just Sleep more. <laughs> yes, yeah, sleep more in the in the dark and uh, be more active in the in that's, the summer. That's, that's
1: one part to it, but we we also um, we also saw that there was quite some activity in winter as well, which was which was somewhat surprising. So they they adjust they adjust their performance in a way their their photosynthetic capabilities in winter so that they're more efficient at um, capturing sunlight and not making energy to, you know, to, to create create energy to, to carry them through the winter. And this was quite interesting, because for a while, you know, it, the assumption was that there's nothing really going on in winter. You know, things are just asleep. But um, in reality, we, we could see that there is, you know, life does does carry on under very low... Light. Would you say life finds a way? Life finds a way. <laughs> and, yeah. in, in,
0: in winter, in the Arctic as well. Yeah. So you were... In Nook, the big smoke uh, in, in uh, Greenland uh, at about that time. But I know you went to the North Pole as well. Didn't, isn't that true? Yeah, yeah. I went.
1: That was, that was actually in 2012 as well. Yeah, so, so I went to the North Pole aboard um, a big research vessel, an icebreaker. And we left from, from Norway and made our way past Valbard's, kept going all the way up to the North Pole and then came back and um, in the the summer this was in summer in summer yeah in summer it also happened to be the summer with the lowest sea ice extent so you know the extent of sea ice in the arctic is like one of the key measures of of climate change almost right we see it in the news all the time that the, the sea ice extent in summer is shrinking and um this this summer had a record low and the idea was that we would go there and we would study all the processes associated to to the reduced ice pack um, to try to figure out what's going on. And what what was going on then? In that, in that particularly unique year? It's... Um, so one of, one of the interesting results that we saw is that... Um, so, so the ice pack acts very much as an almost upside-down garden. So first of all, the Arctic Ocean is quite... It has these large shelf areas that are very shallow, but the central parts of it are quite deep. They go to about four thousand meters, and then you have this, you know, thin film of ice on the surface, right? That is, in and of itself, is an entire ecosystem. So there will be so sunlight that penetrates through the ice, sustains growth of photosynthetic organisms living on the underside of the ice. And this forms, together with uh, plankton in the water column, the basis of the food chain in the Arctic. And what we saw that year that was quite striking was that large clumps of this photosynthetic matter, these sort of ice algal aggregates, we call them, because there was so much that are usually attached to the underside of the ice, um, because there was so much ice melt, a lot of them ended up being deposited directly into the deep sea, down to several kilometers and so they were, in a way, they were nourishing a whole ecosystem, uh, several kil- kilometers below the surface. And what was really interesting about this this discovery is that it really shows you how connected eco- uh, parts of the ecosystem are. So stuff that's happening at, at the surface of the ocean is impacting, you know, the ecosystem down to the greatest depths in the ocean.
0: Oh, okay. So there's both. Uh if, you, if I could put it in more simplistic terms, a positive and a negative there for the communities at the, at the surface of the water, for the sea ice communities. It, it's, a, it's a bad thing that sea ice extent is is being reduced in the summertime and it's being reduced year after year uh, because of global warming. Uh, but then you're saying that other communities can benefit from, from the fallout from that.
1: It's, it, it could be. So there is, in general, an increase in primary production in the Arctic Ocean. So we're seeing more phytoplankton growth. Um, I suppose if you have less ice, that'll that by far sort of removes the habitat for ice algae and and other organisms that live their life cycle on the ice, right like seals and polar bears and all the th- sort of things that we like. Um, but it, I think the best way to describe it is that there's going to be a shift there's going or th- there are you know changes occurring in the Arctic that are going to change. Um, the ecosystem in, in quite fundamental ways. Did you make it to the to the actual
0: North Pole?
1: We, we, I, I did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so so the, I was, the true
0: North Pole, not the magnetic North Pole, because the magnetic North Pole is somewhere in Canada. It is.
1: Yeah. So the true North Pole. Um, so the ship, I believe, the ship made it until about 135 kilometers from the North Pole. We're really hoping, naturally, to get the ship. All the way uh, to to the to the North Pole, but it didn't happen. Um, and the reason for that, as far as far as I understand, is because there was quite a lot of snow on the ice. So it, m- maybe you might think that it's it's hard for an icebreaker to break through ice. Actually, it's not it's not it's not the hardest thing. The hardest thing is if there's a lot of snow on the surface, and that co- that causes a lot of friction on the bow of the ship. So mm-hmm. we actually couldn't go all the way to the North Pole. But I was lucky enough to get on a helicopter that was passing over the North Pole during that expedition. So this was a big ship, right? It had two helicopters. And some of the uh, sea ice um, physicists wanted to measure the thickness of the ice at the North Pole. So I I got, the, um, you know, I got under the passenger seat and, and we made it there. And yeah, it was, it was a pretty incredible sight that year how How was the feeling to to be at the top of the world <laughs> it was really it was it was really surreal um it's so usually when when they do these sort of trips so these trips happen every few years i guess, and when they get to the North Pole, there's usually a race that people do around the world <laughs> right you've, like, been, you've been literally around the world <laughs> you've been you, you, you do a little um you know a kilometer or whatever race around around the North Pole, so you've gone around the world. Um, we couldn't do that but it was it was really surreal in other ways i think the most striking thing was how little ice there actually was you know you're up there in the north pole you just think it's just a frozen wonderland right and it's it's not it's just full of full of um, melt ponds and uh, but it it was a fascinating sight it was really surreal to think that we were so far up north and i was in a helicopter flying over the sea ice yeah um, so yeah, it was cert- definitely one to remember.
0: Whenever you're talking about the the health of the ice, you're talking about uh, the the thickness of it. Because if it's very thick, then it hasn't been melted for for many years. How how thick was the ice at the North Pole? A lot of it, I think, was was about a meter. That's not thick. that's that's
1: maybe one year's worth of. Uh... Exactly. So it's the sort of ice that would that would melt in summer, probably. Wow. And then and then f- um, form again in winter. Uh, the the mal- what we call multi-year ice, so ice that has survived several cycles of of thaw, is um, there's very little of that left, and it's mostly focused around northern Canada. So it's in 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 the you know in the central Arctic, there's there's actually they think there's
0: very little um, multi-year ice at all. Well, <clears throat> the 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 ice does grow back every winter, but if it melts every <coughs> every summer, then Exactly.
1: Really, the the you know the the, the 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 ice ecosystem springs to life in mm-hmm. uh, you know when the light comes back, right? But if in summer, in late summer, there's not going to be ice, then there's not going to be you know the whole ecosystem associated to to the ice pack. So naturally, that's one one concern, sort of thing about about climate change and
0: yeah.
1: reduced sea ice cover. Yeah.
0: So you're you're one of the the very few people that i know in fact you're the only person i know that, that, know that has also been to uh, to antarctica right yeah <laughs> <laughs> how did you get from denmark to antarctica
1: yeah so um antarctica is is extremely remote right so i think there are are some commercial flights going to Antar- to the peninsula in mm-hmm. Antarctica. But um, what we did is that we flew to Punta Arenas in Chile from, from here, from Denmark. And then from, from Punta Arenas, we took a military plane, like a cargo plane, one of the big sort of Hercules Yeah, um, cargo planes. It. So we flew with the Chilean military aboard the Hercules and landed on King George Island, which is one of the first land masses you get to in Antarctica um, along the on, on the on the peninsula and then from from King George Island we uh, took we got onto a military ship so we spent a few days in, on King George Island and then uh, took uh, took a military ship for a few days to a small island mm-hmm. um, along the peninsula where there was the where there was a the Chilean, Chilean base uh, altogether I think it took us a week to get there <laughs> and um wow and our departure t- uh, 8 weeks later was delayed by a further 2 weeks because we wanted to get uh, to gather more data and uh, so so naturally you're at the me- you're sort of at, at the mercy of this wild weather right and once you get into the water to collect your your samples you become a part of the food chain basically as well and you're very very aware of I, that okay what what do you mean did you see some leopard seals yes uh, that was it was actually the first the first thing that we saw when we got to the research base was a leopard seal you know um eating a penguin <laughs> in the water, and we needed to be in that water the uh, following day how big how big are these guys I, they're they're like meters and meters they're massive <laughs> they're yeah. absolutely huge um so yeah so it so it is an incredible place, but it's also an incredibly difficult place to to do research so, so well.
0: how, how did you feel putting on your uh, your uh pretty thick dry sit i imagine and, and getting in the water yeah it, it was it was exciting
1: it, it was exciting you know you get a, you're a little bit nervous uh because these things are huge and they're also very curious uh-huh. so it, they don't necessarily need to attack you right to cause to cause harm they could just come by and give you a little peck and just you know rip your rip your regulator hose off, uh-huh. and then you're down there at whatever twenty meters, or they just could could grab you and drag you to the surface, um, without really you know wanting to wanting to hurt you. I don't I don't think that they necessarily want to hurt you, but I think they're just you know curious and big creatures. Yeah. Um, so it's a little bit nervous, but once you fo- you are w- once you focus on your tasks, the things you need to do at the bottom, you get it done. You know, there's someone um in a rib on the surface looking out for leopard seals and 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 if they do see something then they would you'd usually like bang two two metal rods together at the surface mm-hmm. and you, we should be able to hear that down at the bottom so the the the, the like there are a lot of fascinating things about antarctica but but one of the things is that it's permanently cold right so the the water's when we were there in summer we're only about one and a half degrees C. Mm-hmm. So, but life flourishes there, right? We see a huge abundance of animals. Um, it really takes your breath away when you see, you know, thousands of
0: penguins, or um, you know, tens of humpback whales. Or what? What, what did the uh, thousands of penguins smell like? <laughs> You know, I've wasn't... never smelled thousands of penguins, so I'm really good. Yeah, curious. we were we were actually living
1: living among them for 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 several weeks, so I, I got a I, I don't know, I must have gotten, you know, used to it. But <laughs> it's I all I know is that it certainly got worse when they had their their pups, when they had their babies. You know, when they had um when there were little penguins that were just sort of pooping all over the place. Uh, but they eat fish, right? So you can probably imagine that it's not
0: it's not that pleasant yeah yeah i eat fish and yeah you're right <laughs> <laughs> so what were we doing in the Ant- antarctica
1: a lot of the work we did there is basically just describing the habitats and the ecosystems so there was part of the work that dealt with um, just collecting samples taking photos because for for this part of Antarctica, there wasn't even an accurate bathymetric map. We didn't really even know the depth. Yeah. You know, before before we really went there and So you're, it out. you're
0: you're like a proper pioneer and adventurer. A a, a proper in a pioneer. A, At least <laughs>
1: some of the data. There is some data, but it's from from decades ago when they didn't have you know the modern tools we have today. So I think I I think you know a lot of what we did was actually just trying to describe these ecosystems to set the record, right? So that there will be one record from there. And um, then we can do sort of subsequent, uh, you know, through subsequent visits, we can see whether the ecosystem changes or whether it stays the same over time. And um, so part of the work we did, we were mapping out the seafloor. We we were doing a lot of diving, taking samples, identifying um, organisms, and then there was also part, another part of our uh, of our work that we were there to do specifically was the these carbon flux um, measurements. So we wanted to figure out whether the seafloor around Antarctica was a net you could say a net source or a net sink of CO two. That 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 could be one way one way to put it, but this also has important implications for the ecosystem. So if we can figure out how much primary production for instance is taking place in these areas we could then um figure out how important the seafloor could be for sort of sustaining for nourishing the communities of um of organisms we see in the waters over there which range from you know at the, that's that's them at the bottom of the food chain right the the photosynthetic production mm-hmm. and from there we see you know you know several um, layers within the within the food chain, all the way up to um, the scary
0: leopard seals. So without a, a healthy sea sea bottom, without a healthy uh, grip of algae, you don't have any leopard seals. You don't have any humpback whales.
1: Yeah, that's 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 part of the part of the puzzle is yeah. figuring out where this prime this photosynthesis, this primary production comes from, and how much of it comes from the water mm-hmm. in terms of the plankton and how much is, is on the sea seafloor. Okay. So that's, that's part of the puzzle we're trying to solve. One, one of the really interesting things about Antarctica is that despite, there being, despite it being very cold and very like, extreme see, you know, seasonally, uh, we do see really high primary production rates. And this is required, right, for... I mean, if you just look at the sheer numbers of animals, of large animals on Antarctica, they need to be eating all the time right they're eating krill they're eating fish they're eating all sorts of things and those and that level of the food chain is then in turn sustained through largely through sort of um primary production through ph- photosynthetic production so um that was really our job to try to figure out how important the seafloor was for contributing to uh primary
0: production in this in this system greenland or, no, sorry the arctic or antarctic which was your favorite to visit
1: The the most sort of impressive place was Antarctica, for sure. Yeah, hands down. It's just the... And, I mean, you must have gotten some similar impressions when you were in Greenland of the space. It's just, it's kind of hard to put a scale bar on it, Mm -hmm. you know? You're just seeing these huge glaciers and and, and mountains, and your eye is sort of looking for something to put, you know, to, to... compare it to but um the 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 really impressive thing about antarctica is despite it being like a huge continent there's very little space along the coast because the glaciers keep coming out all the way to the water and in some cases on the water as well and so there are just these tiny slithers of land um, and that's it and you know these these small bits of land are just then packed with thousands of penguins Mm -hmm. So it's it's a it's a very impressive place. It's it's just the scale of it is just it, it's it's hard to make sense of in a way. Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, one thing I found very humbling in in Greenland was the was how fierce the the weather could be, just out of the blue. Mm-hmm. You you could some days you could go outside, you know, blue skies, there's no wind, and you could go out in a t-shirt. But then sometimes the wind picked up, where you couldn't you couldn't walk. Like it blew you on your ass and you had to like crawl to the nearest <laughs> post and pull yourself up. And you're just like humbled at, the, at how fierce it could be.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's, there, there, is, there is always that, that sense, you know, that you need to be aware of things around you. And, you know, when you're working on the ice in the, in the central Arctic, there are polar bears, right, around you. You know they're there. And it's also, ext- it can be extremely foggy. Uh-huh. So yeah. you know there are pe- people. You know the, it's it is it is a well coordinated um, expedition. Overall, there'll be people on polar bear guard, both on the bridge and the ship, and also on the ice. But at some points, you just think you know a fort- a polar bear can run at like forty whatever kilometers per hour, mm-hmm. and um, <laughs> I mean what what you know, and if it's if it's foggy and visibility is is not that that. So there's there's always this inherent danger, but I think you just learn to to cope with it, and you just put all the measures possible in place mm-hmm. so that everyone feels safe, and um, you can get the job done, basically.
0: I'll, I'll tell you the story about uh, about Greenland. So so uh, <laughs> it, yeah, in Greenland, it, it, there's not a lot of not a lot of fresh vegetables, or it takes a, it takes a lot to import food. So people do hunt, and people hunt because for, for conservation reasons, the reindeers can be so abundant in the in the summertime that if there's a bad winter following, there was there was so many reindeers eating all the vegetation that they can't live through the winter, and then the whole population crashes. So they, there's a, coding, or a hunting quota for reindeer. Mm-hmm. Uh, Interesting. And, and I said that for anybody listening who's against against hunting, it, it's 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 a sport. I find it very fun, but it's also it's something that uh, that's done for the the good of the reindeer population. But we, we went into the fjords <laughs> this on the the second last day of hunting season like a long way up a fjord next next to it, it took like 8 hours to seal in there and and went uh went hiking up up the mountains in search of reindeer find found a couple just before sunset and uh ended up taking them taking them back to the Sorry, I forgot a part of the story. We took a, a little rubber boat the whole way up a very long freshwater river, <laughs> but by this stage it was getting dark. The sun just went down. We get back to our little rubber boat at the end of the r- the river, but the river was frozen. So we're thinking, okay, not good. we we're, we're, we're <laughs> it's a long way back to the to the main boat. Uh, maybe we can wait until the next high tide, so the salt water can come in and defrost this this freshwater. Um, ice. So then we got ready to to buckle down for a few hours underneath the survival blanket. The the lady Christine who was taking taking me in in hunting she the whole day she was just talking about how how uh, dangerous polar bears were how they they wouldn't do anything with the our rifles and the bullets in the rifles how it would just make them more angry and uh, and there's usually a polar bear in this area. Uh, at this time of the year, every year, <laughs> so <laughs> we're sitting there with a couple of dead reindeer. <laughs> Perfect solar bear food. Exactly. Uh, it's it's minus eight degrees. We're in a survival blanket that I ended up ripping at some point. We're looking up at the beautiful aurora borealis, uh, which is gorgeous. But you're distracted by all the rustling in <laughs> <laughs> the vegetation around you. Eventually, the high tide came in. Didn't do anything to the to the to the ice. We made it back to the to the our Proper boat. Uh, by this stage, the, fr- the salt water had frozen, and we had an eight-hour trip back to <laughs> back to the place we were living. So we're, we're sitting at the front of the boat, just slowly grinding against the ice and that horrible, <sighs> yeah. Yeah. and we're sitting at the front just in case uh, the the ice ripped the, the fiberglass apart, so then we could go to the back of the boat and lift the hole above the water. <laughs> fog just came out of nowhere, just out of absolute nowhere. There's fog descends, and then. In a place where they never see icebergs, we started to see icebergs just a few meters from the boat, <laughs> and then uh, many hours later, we managed to get up, get back to the back to where we were staying, and and uh, I think we had a whiskey then. <laughs> you think? <laughs> yeah. yeah,
1: yeah. It's um, it is it is one of those places where things can change really quickly, mm-hmm. um, and I've I've had s- sort of similar experiences where we've been out on, a boat, on the boats and, um, you know, there's just flat calm and um, then suddenly, you know, beautiful sailing conditions and then out of nowhere, the tide changes, brings in a load of ice from I- icebergs and suddenly you're caught in between this, in, in, in between this sort of f- entire fields of, of ice mm. and you can't really do anything about it but just wait it out basically um yeah it's it's the same with with um with bad weather too right and and it, it, it happened in antarctica as well you tend to get these really strong winds called catabatic winds that just kind of force their way down hmm. um down the mountains and 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 yeah wreak, can wreak havoc if you're not yeah if you're not careful so you know you're constantly watching the weather report right and and i don't know what what, what you <laughs> you you guys i guess were too far yeah. too far gone
0: by that point it wasn't the plan. It wasn't the yeah. plan to stay there for the night <laughs> <laughs> so b- before you continue carl could you could you describe in in simple terms a carbon cycle so a, a carbon cycle is
1: um, is one of the many what we call biogeochemical cycles on Earth. And, and it concerns sort of the movement and the transformation, we call it the flux, of chemical elements um, such as carbon between living and non-living forms. When I talk about carbon, the carbon cycle within the, the context of my research, it's usually looking at uh, the balance between photosynthesis, which is the production of living biomass, uh, living plant biomass from CO2, and its reverse process, which is called respiration. And um, one thing, I guess, to realize is that coastal zones are really hotspots for these processes. So that's one of of the reasons why my research focuses on on coastal zones. The carbon cycle, in particular, is, is very interesting because carbon is the currency of ecosystems. So the transformation and the flux of carbon between different forms... Is what makes Earth capable of sustaining life. Um, one example of this, for instance, could be that, you know, living matter from the time of the dinosaurs, a hundred million years ago, um, that was buried in the Earth, uh, was you know, dug up now today yeah. um, as as oil, and it was burned to generate energy, and then it enters the atmosphere as CO two, right? Mm-hmm. And the CO2 is then taken up by plants during photosynthesis. And then it is then broken down again back to CO2 by microbes feeding on decaying matter. So it's these, these sort of cycles that, are, that I think are really interesting and fascinating to study.
0: That, that's a, a, a gorgeous picture. A hundred million years ago, you have sunlight energy coming, hitting some uh, marine algae that took the energy from the sun took CO2 and water and made sugar and then it was buried a hundred million years later we dig it up and we use that stored sunlight basically it is stored sunlight hmm. for, for our own energy purposes and then that goes into the cycle again and that stored sunlight goes round and round in the cycle that ancient energy I think that's right. a, a beautiful story and we're, yeah. b- we're burning burning dinosaurs <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, it is. It is. It's. It's. Um, it. Sh- it shows you that you know these cycles are are linked, right? We don't exist in um, isolation of of the earth, and, and that's where you know what we eat and where we get our energy is very much linked to these processes as well.
0: I find it very uh, distracting to think of where have all say the individual <laughs> atoms in our food or our beer, where have they been throughout history? You know, <laughs> yeah. at one point they were they were born in stars. You know, and, and where have they passed through on their way to our on their way to our uh, smirk of the dolphin? Beer. <laughs> Cheers, Carl. Cheers. Mm. Oh yeah, you want another beer. Sure. So our next beer, Carl, uh, I bought it because it says the word greenhouse on it, so that's very appropriate for our our discussion there so, Mm-mm-mm. this is from in Greenhouse Imperial Lager, conditioned on American oak. Very nice. Whatever that means. Uh, <laughs> it's from the uh, the brewing company Evil Twin. Do you know the story behind Evil Twin? Uh, Was he bad? <laughs> well, uh, Mickler is probably one of the most known beer. Like a you could, you could call it a microbrewery, but it's really global now, and they are they do fantastic beer. But uh, the brother and the, the guy Mickeler had a bit of an argument a while ago, so the brother went off to start his own beer company, and it's called Evil Twin. Oh, and it's, controversy. it's just, just as nice as Mickeler. There you go, Carl. Cheers. Yeah. Cheers. So photosynthesis is the creation of sugars from sunlight, and then respiration is burning those sugars for energy. Uh, can you describe scenarios where these are out of balance with each other? For example, whenever there's more photosynthesis than respiration, or also whenever there's more respiration mm-hmm. compared to photosynthesis?
1: Yeah, sure. So so that's like one of, one of the big questions in the ocean, I would say, is to try to figure out this balance exactly. Um, because... This, so, so whenever you measure these, these processes, uh, you're doing it over a specific area of the seafloor, typically within a certain habitat. Um, and there are, you know, like, like ecosystems on land, there are many different habitats in the coastal ocean as well. Anyone who has been sort of snorkeling around uh, Denmark, um, you know, if you're brave enough or, <laughs> uh, <laughs> or other places. Yeah, there you, are other places. There are other places. <laughs> you would have seen that um, you know you would have seen things like seagrasses probably that just look like meadows just just on land um, you probably would have seen some some mussels some you know some uh, these these shellfish on the seafloor as well and one of the questions that i try to uh, to address in my research is to try to figure out the balance between photosynthesis and respiration in these habitats and the reason why that's really interesting is because it it tells you something about how something important about how these habitats function. So, for instance, in one, one of our recent projects, we looked at these processes in many different habitats in in the Baltic Sea. And what we deduced from that work was that um, mussel reefs, for instance, which are quite widespread, they respire much more than they they photosynthesize so that means that there's an imbalance there and they need to somehow get this organic matter from somewhere else and the way that they accomplish that is that they're really good at filtering water right so they filter huge volumes of water they get all the plankton in the water out of it and then they use that organic matter to sort of fuel their metabolism Mm -hmm. at the other end of the spectrum we have um, what we call macroalgal beds they're sort of these brown macroalgae that you see when you're walking along the coast. They grow on rocks. So and and what they do is they 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 have their whole they have a hole fast, they attach to the rocks, and then they grow up vertically into the water column and harvest um, the sunlight like that and photosynthesize. And what we see from our measurements is that they photosynthesize much more than they respire. And what this means essentially is that they can accumulate much more carbon and depending on whether they can they can store the carbon in the habitat or not which in this case they can't because they're on rock it cannot accumulate in the sediments beneath them uh, the carbon gets exported to surrounding habitats and and fuels other parts
0: of the ecosystem we've uh, we've talked about the importance of these coastal habitats how can we protect these coastal habitats yeah, so this is being done through
1: conservation and, through a lesser, and to a lesser extent through restoration. Um, when it comes to restoration, there are several success stories from Denmark and from further afield that illustrate how habitat degradation can be reversed through active restoration. However, it is a laborious process and it, it doesn't, you know, it, it, it wouldn't apply um, everywhere. So, for instance, in the Mediterranean... Seagrasses accumulate substantial amounts of carbon in their sediments, right? It's, it's one, of the, one of the things they do. And they, they store it over thousands of years. Um, however, say, if a, if, a, if a small boat comes and anchors to the seafloor, it um, can disrupt the habitat and cause sort of thousands of years worth of damage. And there are different conservation strategies for this, because naturally, the key here is conservation, right? We don't want to lose all that carbon that's been stored in the sediments and that habitat that's been constructed over so many years. And there are some interesting conservation strategies. So one of them is that um, some countries have designated these habitats as UNESCO World Heritage Sites, because seagrasses are one of the longest-lived organisms on Earth. I- so they- hold well, there are some estimates that they could be two hundred thousand years old. Holy smokes! Yeah, and yeah. So, so another um, way I think is 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 to increase financial incentive as well. So there are some um, incentives such as carbon crediting, which is kind of a, a, a new and, and maybe strange thing, but but it can actually help conservation efforts. And um, with respect to barriers towards conservation, naturally there are there are many different there, there are many different barriers. But um I think that one perspective that's often not talked about um is is the issue with what we call gag lawsuits in Europe, which uh which are also called uh, the proper name is strategic lawsuits against pu- public participation or slaps. Mm-hmm. <laughs> slaps, yeah, because that's what it is, essentially. So these are used extensively, right, um, as, as a form of harassment, actually, to, to, to silence individuals and organizations by eating up their time and money. So it's, it's, it's li- libel uh-huh. uh, suits, basically. Uh, however, um, last year... So, so the, the whole idea is that there are people who are, um, you know, whistleblowers, maybe holding people to account... Or maybe just watchdogs, you know, journalists releasing a certain, uh, writing an article about, about it, and what they can find often is that, is that organizations with, with vested interests, whether it's a company or a politician, um, then suddenly file these lawsuits against them. That's meant to just intimidate them, mm-hmm. right, to silence them. And it's it's actually a really serious serious issue. But um, and last year Greenpeace got together with more than a hundred other NGOs. And they published a policy paper. And um what many people are hoping is that this will result in the EU implementing a series of anti slap legislation. So to make it <laughs> harder <laughs> Which sounds kind of which sounds kinda of funny, but it's 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 actually really important for people driving these causes uh-huh. um, you know, not to not to encounter any hurdles and, and to be able to to speak and
0: have a debate about it. So, so for example, if you want to, to uh, to to have some kind of, I don't know, maybe a, a protest or do a campaign uh, against, say, eating meat. Yeah, you can't get slapped. You can get slapped. You can get slapped at the moment, but but this legislation would make it possible that you cannot get slapped. Or it would make <laughs> it it would
1: make it harder for for people
0: to to, to open these
1: these because c- in many countries there's. Um, it takes very little to open to like open one of these libel cases, small costs, and then um, you know the, the the other party needs to respond to that, and they need to pay, you know, to to and and formulate their response. And if they don't, then they're just guilty by admission. So, so. so
0: you go up against Nestle or Coca Cola yeah. for their uh, for their carbon budget. They're going to shut you down immediately. They they they'll pro-
1: they might try. Yeah. Yeah. But it could be anything. It could be down to an individual, you know, mm-hmm. who 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 you're, you know, what you're proposing. They don't really like that, so so they just mm-hmm. slap you.
0: Yeah, and then you you don't have the 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 budget to match their, this exactly. multinational organization. Exactly.
1: So so um and and this is obviously hindering conservation, right? Because yeah. because people often speak up against certain activities that are damaging ecosystems. Yeah. But and then they're muzzled in this way.
0: So that's 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 awful. Yeah. But but, but but this, this is uh, there are people working to prevent this happening in the EU? Yeah, at least. absolutely.
1: It was last year, I think, um, that you know, Greenpeace got together with all these NGOs mm-hmm. and proposed these specific ways for how this can be largely yeah. sort of reduced. So.
0: Well, that, well that, that, that's excellent because it seems to be something that's against free speech. It is. Yeah, it is. So we live in hope. As an ecologist, you're studying connections in nature. Uh, I'm putting a a budget onto that. Uh, But you recently joined the Danish Institute for Advanced Study. Uh, I'm doing this season of the podcast with with the Institute. And I'm a big Mm -hmm. fan of the idea behind the Institute because it is cross-disciplinary connections. So you have people such as yourself, marine scientists, meeting historians, meeting health scientists, meeting engineers, and just talking together, basically, to see what kind of... What kind of ideas you can come up with, which is fantastic. Because back whenever I was studying biology, you just we just hung out with a bunch of biologists, <laughs> which was great. <laughs> yeah. But uh, it it would have been probably a lot more richer to 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 hang out with people from the humanities, from business and social science, for example. <laughs> um, so, how, have you been working with anybody uh, outside your field of marine science? Yeah. So um, my work so far has
1: very much focused on on ocean processes. Um, but so in, in marine science and in, in probably in other sciences and other disciplines, too, we often think of cross disciplinary, cross disciplinary studies, you know, as a marine biologist working with a biochemist or a geologist, um, which in, in and of themselves, these collaborations can be can be really uh, fruitful and move the field forwards. Right. Mm-hmm. But what I think Diaz um, does in a way, it's a more accurate reflection of society as a whole because it encourages you to think of the multiple dimensions of your research mm-hmm. um, that could be of interest. And um, so naturally, my, my core expertise is in studying ocean processes, and I will use my, my position in the US um, to build a research team uh, focusing on the effects of, of these extreme events, uh, the storms and heat waves on ecosystems. Um, I, you know, I'm excited about this topic. I think it's the next sort of research frontier within my my field of study, but I'm also keen to participate within the within the Dias environment. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm in discussions with researchers at the architecture and engineering facili- uh, faculties, for instance, to explore ways for how to enhance biodiversity and ecosystem services within urban environments. So. Okay. Yeah, most people live in cities, most cities are close to the sea, and there are, you know, there's an increased need to, to sort of replace, to, to rethink about how we design cities and urban environments to bring
0: biodiversity into these, these places as well. So you mentioned uh, ecosystem services there. Seagrass communities, they're, 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 they're great. We <laughs> we've agreed that they're great. great, but are are, are they great um, just ecologically, or, or can can we do we ha- do we have a use, use for them? Like like grass above above uh, above uh, the ground, we we use that we use that for for grazing for fe- feeding cattle. We can we can use that we can use uh, grass above ground to uh, thatch our roofs. If we were from the olden days yeah. <laughs> or the countryside of Denmark, mm-hmm. is there a use that we have for sea grasses?
1: Um, yeah, so 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 we're we're thinking more and more about sustainability, right, and about our need to source new materials um, that are sustainable, that contribute to a certain a, a circular type of of economy, right? And um, historically in Denmark, it's 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 quite interesting that seagrasses have been used uh, for for construction in the past. Um, there are some houses that are like three hundred years old. Still
0: have seagrass um, on you know as thatch on the I route. didn't know that they had, they used seagrass. I thought that was uh, above water
1: grass yeah, um well, in some places like on Leso for instance mm-hmm. the the island um, in Denmark it it has been used and in fact it it's it's it was used quite a lot so after the after the autumn storms right the stuff washes up on the shore, they would li- sort of spread it out in the fields. Uh, the rains would wash away all the, all the salt and all, all sorts of other things, and then they would just use it. They would just use it for insulation, for you know, roofing. Mm. Um, but uh, naturally, after the the seagrass pandemic, <laughs> yeah, the, pl- the, the great the great <laughs> seagrass plague, yeah, the great <laughs> seagrass plague, um, it it wasn't a reliable mat- you know source of of material anymore. So, and and then there were all the inventions that came after that and and you know it it, it wasn't the, the the best material to use anymore but but nowadays um we're looking more and more towards this the, towards um you know sourcing new materials that are more sustainable mm-hmm. and i think you know seagrasses could be could be one option there where you can extract you know you could you could use the fibers for seagrass so with very little processing you know much less than 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 hemp, for instance. You could just use these fibers that are naturally fire and rot resistant and and pest resistant um, and make some sort of materials out of them. So so I'm also in discussions with with uh, material scientists and architects at SDU mm-hmm. to um, to see how we could use these sort of materials uh, for construction in particular.
0: So we actually have a couple of questions, Carl uh, from the internet. Maybe you've heard about it. The internet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, we we have one um, from uh, uh, Mikkel uh, Hagman uh, on Instagram. What are your views on commercial fishing and its impact on the ocean? And does fishing for sport have an impact as well?
1: Hmm. I'm not. I must admit, I'm not an expert on fishing, but I guess um, you know the 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 impacts of commercial fishing were really sort of uh, brought forward in the in the recent documentary, right? That, that sea seas Yeah, sea
0: Spiracy, mm-hmm. That's what it's called. I watched it. You did, and, and it was. Uh, have you watched it? I did actually. Yeah, well, a few I, days ago. The immediate impact for me was. Well, first of all, it, it, he's—he's—I'm he's, sure that he's uh, exaggerating here, but I still—it hit me. It hit me very emotionally. Thinking, okay, I can't eat any fish anymore. This is uh, <laughs> this is this is really, this is really quite. Uh, I, I'm haunted by the images uh, that were shared on the on the on the documentary, but uh, then I went looking into some of the quotes that were used. For example, there's going to be no fish in the oceans by 2048. That was a paper published in 2006, and very quickly the authors retracted it. And uh, since then, there's been a lot of papers to say that okay, that that is not the case. And if you're looking up information for a documentary like that, you're going to be able to see that this 2006 paper has been retracted, and you're going to see how many other scientists have denied those claims. But still, he included it in the documentary, mm-hmm. and and that really. That I, I find that he of course he had a, he had an agenda and he wanted to get he basically wanted to get people to stop eating fish. But because he misused science, the more you misuse science, the more mistrust you grow in the general public in science. Yeah. But because mm-hmm. it, science is the only way that we have of observing the world and using data to rule mm-hmm. out your bias or your emotional connection to the subject
1: right and and i think i mean okay so i I have mixed feelings about it uh as well but um i i guess one consideration is okay so what does sea spirit what does this um, documentary represent and to me as a marine scientist it's more i think it's to me it's more of an artistic expression of this person this individual who's sort of who loves the oceans, right? He's, he's concerned about the plight of the oceans. Mm. So he makes a movie about the ocean as seen from his perspective. And this movie makes it onto the uh, Net- Netflix top 10 list, right? Which, yeah. is, which is obviously a, a great achievement. Um, I, I am pre- convinced that the issues he discusses are real. So they are real issues. And um, from what I understand, people mostly take issue with the statistics that are being presented. And, yeah, some of them sounded, you know, I had sort of, I thought some of them sounded, sounded uh, incorrect as well, Mm -hmm. or maybe they were misinterpreted. And certainly with the solution that they sort of offer at the end, which is just, you know, to stop eating fish and all that sort of thing, the, the reality is, of course, much more, much more gray and i think we should i think it's important to talk about all of that like you know the the statistics you know how when do we expect fish to run out but i think it shouldn't overshadow the overall goal um, which is i suppose to bring to light ocean issues and to try to influence policy through debate and one thing i think that we can probably both agree on is that people have been talking about these issues much more in recent days than mm-hmm. they have in the past year for instance yeah right um so i i think in a way the documentary succeeds in in doing that in 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 bringing these issues to light and um i think one thing to remember as well and 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 maybe i'm being a bit <laughs> a bit controversial but so if we if people like like myself like you, you know, we're we're both interested in the ocean. We we, we love the ocean. We want to see it you know, prosper or whatever into the future. We want we hope for maybe sustainable fisheries. Um I think whenever we kind of take a stand against against that in a way we're, you know, we're playing into the hands of perhaps the people who are damaging the oceans. Mm-hmm. You know, so 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 I, th- I'm not personally I'm not too concerned about it. Mm. I I think it's actually, it actually succeeds in bringing a lot of these these issues to light. I've been talking to my you know to my parents about eating salmon, and so, you know my mom asked me like, is there really you know is there really a color chart for salmon <laughs> and, yeah. and all these sort of things, and and oh do they really throw away so many so many dead dead fish and all that sort of stuff? So I think there are, it it has. It has certainly stimulated debate.
0: And I think that's only a good thing. But it has stimulated the debate. But he he was brittle in his depiction, especially some of the scientists in the film. They were maybe quoted. You could see them for a couple of sentences. Mm -hmm. And you know that uh, the conversation was a lot longer. The no sentences, it's like me, me. Uh, we, we've been talking for for an hour now, and then taking two minutes of it and using that, you know, it, <laughs> I, it I could put you out out of. I could uh, I could misquote you. Yeah, that's the exactly. beauty of the long form podcast. <laughs> you know, it, it's a, it's a, it's an honest media source, but I. It it did appeal to the people. People that come from countries like Western Europe and North America, you know, they they could say, "Okay, I'll not eat fish. I'll just eat my my quinoa and soybean salad." Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's a, that's a luxury to be able to do that. It is. I mean, my
1: my advice would be like, you know, don't look to these sort of documentaries to tell you what you should be doing. Mm-hmm. Right? There are thousands of people worldwide. That, mm-hmm. that are experts on the topic mm-hmm. that work day in day out to help you make these choices. You know, if if you want to eat more sustainably, there are sustainable seafood guides, mm-hmm. right? Right, that give you a lot of the details uh, mm-hmm. about that particular fish, um, you know, fishery yeah. or that activity. So um, I don't know. Perhaps people are reading a little bit too much into it. I'm yeah. not sure. I I, well, I just see it as a as as I said, it's it's more like they're expression of of concern you know
0: well well what i what i would hope for would be that it would inspire people to then go to the source it would inspire inspire people to to do a little bit more research and it's it certainly does that i think you know
1: i think i think people are being more aware of of the source nowadays Mm -hmm. and i've had several friends ask you know who who are not marine scientists um ask me you know is that true you know is that real is that really an issue and and then you can have that debate with them you know mm. and they can get they can get better information so yeah.
0: well this is what we want to do with science beers we want to inspire <laughs> science driven uh or data driven debate uh, in bars once the bars open and they're going to open very soon if you're listening in the future and the bars are open there was a point in 2021 2020 where there was a plague and we couldn't go to the bars which is why myself and card here we're sitting in a we're sitting in actually in a music studio. There's a there's a drum kit over there. There's a piano and loads of basses around here, and uh, we're drinking cans. <laughs> but we hope we sure hope to be back in a bar someday soon, Carl. Uh, we have another question from uh, Claudia Campagnol. What would you share with non marine biologists that would make us feel? This is kind of linked with the previous question. That would make us feel like we need need to change our behaviour. Uh, I, I I guess to to protect the marine environment. Uh, and she says especially considering that you've been to both poles and most people uh listening to the podcast including myself have not so so have you saw anything in your uh, in your research expeditions around the world that you can share with us that might make us uh, think more about our our, our natural environment uh, that might make us care for it a bit more like one one
1: thing i would um consider is to think of you know if we're talking about we're just talking about seafood before right and where that comes from i would you know we we, sh- we should be we should think about that right we should think about where our food comes from and um exactly as 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 i sort of mentioned before in response to the to the other question i think we should we should ask more questions like where is it coming from you know use These guides if we can and employ the the sort of the same level of criticism that we would for other foods right so if if we want to eat local you know think think of that in terms of seafood as well perhaps you know and 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 maybe look into if you're concerned about that uh, look into sustainable seafood guides which are really good and and openly available um so I
0: think that's that's the best thing I can think of. Um, and prob- e- eating locally is really the best thing. E- eating seasonally and locally is probably one of the best things we can do. A- avocados the whole year round from South America probably yeah. not not great. Tiger shrimps from Thailand all year round is probably not great. But but there's loads of l- delicious local vegetables here in Denmark. Exactly. Or, or probably so, where you the listeners come from. There's probably a lot of delicious local foods. And if it's local and it's seasonal, it's probably more nutritious and it's probably tastier anyway. Exactly.
1: That's 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 what I would think, and that's that's what I would suggest. So um,
0: yeah, maybe be just
1: more open, you know, to to trying, perhaps uh, fish that you just thought were oh you know just um, oily and yucky, and there could be delicious ways of cooking them. So
0: get uh, make your kitchen into a science lab and 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 experiment. Carl, thanks very much for uh, joining me on the Science and Beers podcast it's been a pleasure chatting with you thanks for having me great stuff cheers cheers I hope you enjoyed that episode of the Science and Beers podcast I hope you enjoyed our our trip to the remote places around the world I would love to hear from you so please uh, follow up with a comment uh, through social media or else uh, send um, an email to scienceandbeers at gmail.com also if you have any specific questions for Carl, I can forward that on. Again, please uh, help us promote this podcast, share it with a friend, share it on social media, leave a review and subscribe on the sciencebeers.com website. There's a link in the description for our social media pages and Carl's social media pages. I also link to some of the things that Carl mentioned in, uh, in the chat that we had. I sure had fun having a beer and a chat with Carl. And I hope you enjoy listening. Cheers.